say uh, your heart's like that, and Jeff's heart is like that. And so as we'll look at Jesus this evening with his disciples, he's going to go after their hearts because they have fallen back into this default position. Now, it's easy to do. This, uh, <clears throat> this spring, I turned 60 years old, and my son surprised me by taking me away on a golf trip. I'm not a great golfer, so don't, don't think anything different, okay? But uh, he surprised me. He booked the uh, airplane tickets uh, and just told me to hold the date, and we flew to Phoenix, Arizona. He booked a room at the uh, Arizona Biltmore Hotel. Now, that's way above hotels that this guy stays in. I'm Hampton Inn tops, okay? And so you go into this place that's really fancy, not a place I am used to being in, but it's got a wall with all the presidents that have stayed there and played golf. And he travels so much, he gets um, something called the executive lounge privileges. And he says, hey, Dad, this is going to be pretty cool. We got this special black shiny card that enables us to get into the executive lounge. Here's what's kind of weird. Um, if you've traveled and stayed at hotels like I do at the Hampton Inn, you get free breakfast and free coffee, right, and free water. But if you go to an expensive hotel, you got to pay for all that stuff. It makes no sense. But anyway, so we get our card because we kind of check in late that night. And we're thirsty. It's maybe 10 o'clock. They say it's good for 24 hours a day. We go to check in our room, and that card won't work. And right away, pride creeps in. We, we feel entitled. Hey, we deserve to be in that lounge. We, we should get the free water. The next morning, we had that straightened out, and the executive lounge had this nice little patio that set out in the open that was exclusive and you could go get breakfast and when you sat out there people walked by that couldn't get into the executive lounge like you did and it wasn't long that in all honesty you know pride in my heart started getting used to this and thinking this would be pretty nice this evening as we look at uh, Jesus talking to those who are following him he begins to address their hearts because their hearts had become the same way, entitled in their faith. The problem is when you look at Jesus in his life and his teaching, the heart that he demands is radically different. It's one that will be countercultural to the society and the world that we live in. One that's values are, are different. And one that comes only from being changed by being penetrated with the gospel. Because it doesn't come natural. Matter of fact, it's the kind of life that Jesus teaches where we should value being second place over first place. We should value somebody else getting the executive lounge privileges more than myself. Well, here's the big danger. When we fail to live in humility, pride creeps in, selfish self-centeredness takes root, and the focus of life becomes about me instead of God. I pursue things based on my agenda. 
I get comfortable with God thinking I can handle things and I just call on him when I get in a really bad pinch. The sin of pride is the agent of demise in our hearts when this happens. It's so deceptive that it numbs our ability to recognize the magnitude of sin that we have before a holy and righteous God. So we we shrink the way we look at sin and think we're not so bad. And in doing so, we almost say God's maybe not that holy. It's very deceptive, and so Jesus is going to teach on that. It'll lead you into focusing on on, on a day maybe even when you prayed a prayer and wrote that date in your Bible, and now you just trust all your life on what I wrote there that day. I go on with life as if life's mine to live versus the gospel of the kingdom which we're going to learn about as Jesus teaches. So if you're not there yet, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10 verses 32 through 52 and we're going to see um, the display of Jesus disciple making again with those who are following him. Notice Verse 31, before we start, verse 31 says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. He he sets up this discussion that he's going to be having as they travel. So I'm going to look at the first four verses, 32 uh, through 34, together. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, And they were amazed at those who followed, and they were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. That verse 32 begins with saying, they're on the road, disciple-making classes in action, Jesus out front, his disciples are following, says they're going up to Jerusalem. Going up means an elevation change. Because the truth is, they're going from north to south. He's leaving Galilee, going to Jerusalem. This would be, as recorded in the book of John, the fourth trip to Jerusalem for Jesus. This would be the final trip Jesus makes to Jerusalem. What lies ahead of him is a week in which we know as Passion Week. He arrives in Jerusalem for the express purpose to go to the cross, to go to the grave, and to rise again. And so as they're on the road, Jesus is uh, talking and teaching his disciples. And I want you to notice within this verse uh, that we just read, says that the, the group that was following him were amazed and afraid. Doesn't seem like those two emotions should go together, does it? Amazement and fear. But I think they do. And, and here's why I say so. I wonder if those that were following Jesus were amazed because of the 
resolve in which Jesus is heading to Jerusalem with. I mean, this will be the third time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem where I will be killed. And so they have to be amazed. At, look at the courage of Jesus. Look at the resolve to go to Jerusalem knowing what faces me. And the fear side might have been them saying, I wonder what this means for me. Is this going to bring my death? Is, is this going to bring uh, issues for me? Or maybe more importantly, for some of them that were afraid, they might have been thinking, maybe this isn't the Jesus I thought he was. What, what if what I have surrendered, what if what I've said I'm believing and following doesn't turn out to be true? And so Jesus is leading this group to Jerusalem, and notice what happens. They don't get it. And so he takes the 12 aside and begins again for the third time now to describe what's going to happen. <clears throat> the third time, Mark chapter 8, if you're looking in your Bibles, Mark chapter 8 records the first time he tells them that he's heading uh, to Jerusalem. Verse 31 says Jesus is going to foretell his death and resurrection. But there's one of the things that uh, he speaks about in each of these three times that he speaks that, that you need not miss. Because he always connects the gospel and the kingdom to surrender and servanthood. Chapter 8, again, it says that he's going to Jerusalem. And, and he, in those verses... He, he begins to speak about, if anybody will follow after me, he's got to deny himself. He's got to pick up his cross, and he has to follow me. There, there's this devotion and surrender to life. Also, in the chapter 9, Jesus again tells those that are following him, I'm going to Jerusalem where I will die. And in each of these accounts as well, he always adds at the end, after three days, I will arise. In chapter 9, he says, don't seek first place. You have to be a servant for all. And then in again, chapter 10, uh, he uses words like slave, servant, son of man coming to serve and uh, coming to serve and not be served. And so there's this pattern he's trying to teach that a true believer in Christ is devoted to Jesus in every single area of their life to the point you're willing to sacrifice and surrender what you believe and what you do. That sounds a little different than, than maybe the gospel you heard once in your life. It's like just raise your hand, pray a prayer, you're good, just go on with life. It seems to be a little more intense here the way Jesus describes it. Surrender everything. Live like he lived with complete and total commitment. In verses 33 through 45, Jesus continues to teach what this looks like as he expounds on the gospel. Now, he uses the wording, son of man, a couple of times in this verse. He, he's emphasizing his humanity 
and his deity. He's saying the Son of Man came intentionally as man, but also as the one who is the highly heavenly exalted one sent of God for the sins of mankind. So he's connecting these two, the, the human divine nature of Jesus and the gospel uh, to help them try and understand. And then notice in these verses uh, the other thing that he says. He lays out for them exactly what's going to happen in verse 33 and 34. He, he, he says, uh, here's what's going to take place. The chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders are going to condemn him to death. They're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles where he would be uh, convicted under Pontius Pilate. Uh, the Roman Gentiles would be the ones doing the crucifixion, but there would be mocking of Jesus, spitting on Jesus, flogging of Jesus, and he would die. But then notice, again, in each of the three accounts that I said, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus always ends with, and after three days, I will arise. I, I think by doing that, Jesus is trying to communicate his love and care for them and saying, look, what you're going to see, you might not totally understand, but don't be afraid. When I go in the grave, I'm, I'm not going to stay there. What I have told you, what I've taught you as my disciples is true, so don't lose hope. Don't, don't be hopeless when you see all these things take place. I will live. Don't think things are out of control because everything in God's control is always in control. Verses 35 through 37, the next little scene. Follow along with me. And so after Jesus just explains this, it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, when my kids would come up and ask that question, I would never answer. I knew it was a setup. It's kind of interesting. Jesus kind of goes along with uh, the question. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at the right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it's for those whom it has been prepared and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Let's pause there for a minute. It's kind of shocking when you think about it. Two of Jesus' closest disciples, after he had just explained what's going to happen to him, disregard everything he said and kind of jump in and say, hey, we got some stuff we want. Right? I mean, not much compassion or care for what Jesus is going to go through. Not much support. Pretty selfish, right? Prideful heart kicks in. 
James and John may be thinking, hey, here's my opportunity to get those favored places of honor, which were well-known at the time. See, James and John, in reality, misunderstood the gospel. And they misunderstood why Jesus had come to earth. That they're missing the kingdom of Jesus, and they're seeking the kingdom of some kind of religious influence in the world. They were looking for a Messiah that would come, be the promised Messiah of Israel that would conquer, or conquer all those uh, earthly powers at the time and restore uh, Israel to a prominent place. Their hearts were bent on power and pride and status. They wanted to get ahead and somehow missed all that Jesus had been teaching now for three and a half years. Well, this story should probably bring some comfort to us. It does me. You know, as Jesus doesn't scold them, doesn't cast them out, he doesn't humiliate them, but with great mercy and love, he again reflect, uh, redirects their hearts back to the gospel. I will look at that here in just a moment. But Jesus wants to make sure they understand his kingdom is not a kingdom of an overthrow of earthly powers. He wants them to understand his kingdom deals with the separation between man and God, and it conquers sin. It's a kingdom that has to do with human hearts. And so Jesus wants to go right at this heart that is already prideful in James and John and the others and says, you don't know what you're asking. And in essence, he's saying, you haven't been hearing what I've been teaching. You're missing what all along I've been saying is going to happen. Three times now. So Jesus uses language from the Old Testament, Old Testament to emphasize what he's trying to teach them. And he says um, they couldn't drink of the cup. The cup in Old Testament language was a symbol for suffering. It was a, not only a symbol for suffering, but it was understood to be something that would be given to a person, meaning suffering, but given to them by God. So Jesus is saying the suffering that I will have is a suffering given to me by God intentionally, but for your good. And then he says baptism. He said, here's the words of metaphor for the experience of a death-threatening judgment but with the hope of ultimate deliverance. Jesus would be submersed and plunged into death on the cross, which now offers deliverance for those who would believe he is the suffering servant, the Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And James and John still don't get it, do they? He says, you can't drink that. And they say, oh yeah, we can do that continuing to prove that they didn't understand. And so verse 40, Jesus said, it's not mine to determine who sits at my right and who sits at my left. What a statement by Jesus to proclaim that before the foundation of the world, God has predetermined what was going to take place and that Jesus would come being this sacrifice for mankind 
that his love would be on complete display when his one and only son would die in our place so we could be restored back to God. And that he's submissive to that father who initiated this plan. Verse 41, when the others hear what James and John tried to do, we see that they're indignant. They're, they're angry. Why were they angry? Was it a pure heart that they now all of a sudden had? No, they were jealous because James and John beat them to the punch. But what if they get this special place of honor and, and we don't get it? You see, pride in our hearts, when we try to live outside of humility, will always bring jealousy because we have this entitlement mentality that we deserve something. And it happens in our faith, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So verses 42 through 45, follow along with me. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that uh, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. See the contrast? He's saying what you see in the world, the way the world functions, that's not the way my disciples are to live. That's not the way for my followers. But it shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus continues to teach the gospel to those that should have known by now that still weren't getting it. Again, great comfort, at least for myself, because the longer I walk with Christ, the easier it is sometimes to become indifferent to the gospel, isn't it? I just take it for granted. I take God's love for granted. I forget the enormous sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf. And I become a little indifferent. I become a little lukewarm to that if I'm not careful. And we begin to think we deserve something. And we think, well, I've been a follower of Christ for a while now, so I should have some special places of honor. I should have a little say in the way things happen in life and in my church and my community group and on and on and on. First, Jesus lays before them a comparison of what following him looks like. We know about the Jesus that's going to the cross, but have you thought and considered carefully the human Jesus who modeled what living as a true human was to look like? Following sacrificially, giving of ourselves as a servant, the gospel is the example of what living as a servant of God looks like for you and I. Jesus was fully deserving of lording over everyone, anything he wanted, wasn't he? And yet he said, look at me, look at the way I live, follow me, do what I've been doing. This is the way of a follower of mine. 
And he uses the word ransom to kind of put a little extra punch into this teaching of the gospel, if you will. The disciples would have very clearly understood that ransom was something paid by a person to release someone from being held captive. And so he says, I've come to be a ransom. I've come to pay a price to release people from captivity. It was also something, so something that the people would pay in terms of a debt to release someone that was enslaved because they couldn't pay their debt. He's saying, look, I'm coming to pay your debt for sin because you can't pay it. And it was also to purchase the freedom for a close relative ransom would represent. Jesus is saying, I will do all these things because you'll be sons and daughters of God in hopes that he could continue to help them understand that he came for the gospel. He uses this language. Jesus is saying, I came to live as a servant for you, to pay the price required so you could be released from your sin and eternal separation from God. The, the perfect, sinless life of Jesus was the only price that could be paid to release and forgive the debt we owe to God for our sin. He says, so I'm going to do that sacrificially. I'm going to do that as a servant. So you follow me, you agree and understand that. Verse 46. Story continues. And at first you might say, this doesn't fit together, but stick with me. It says, and they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Have we heard that question before? The two of Jesus' close disciples, they came, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks the blind man. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Jesus and his followers now in Jericho, about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. And as they leave the area, the blind man sitting as would have been common along the roadside. Their hope for getting any kind of money, any kind of help when people would come by. But these uh, beggars, these folks that sat there were nuisances. They, they were people that, you know, they just kind of get in the way. And this particular blind man sees his only chance cry out to the Savior. 
there's very key language in these verses that I don't want us to miss tonight. This beggar, while he was asking for eyesight, was truly asking for something much, much bigger. He uses language like son of David twice and connects mercy with that title. The, the son of David gives us the key while Jesus is so willing to stop. The, the son of David was the messianic title given to the Savior in the Old Testament. And so when this blind man cries out, son of David, he's saying, Savior of the world, have mercy on me. M mercy means don't give me what I deserve. Have mercy on me. There, there's a degree of faith in this blind man because when Jesus heals him, what does he say? Your faith has healed you. Your, your faith in coming to me, the Savior of the world, it's a bigger issue. There, there was a passion, there was a, there was a yearning, if you will, that this blind man had for Jesus. Isn't an interesting contrast in these two passages together? You've got James and John who could see physically, but were kind of spiritually blinded in this encounter with Jesus. And now you have a blind man who could not see physically, but spiritually had eyes and heart to cry out for Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And it's always interesting to me when we read a passage like this that, that Jesus always, always, always responds when a person cries out, have mercy on me, Savior. It's a promise that Jesus will always answer. You know, the gospel is not something to be mentally believed. It's not something that when we believe, it, it's just another thing to add to life. The gospel is the thing that we're focused on. I want you to be reminded when we started this study in Mark chapter 1, Jesus said this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel and the kingdom are intertwined and connected. It's intentional language. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Christ in people's hearts. Let me say it again. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Christ in people's hearts more than the rule and reign of Christ in a world that's going to conquer it just for our benefits. The issue that Christ came to deal with was the sin of mankind. And so being a follower of Christ is going to be evident in someone because their passions and their priorities are going to be that of Jesus. Let me just draw some thoughts together this evening, some lessons for us that I think we can take home. The first is this, as we put these two passages together, see what Jesus was teaching. First is, a gospel heart protects against pride. 
A gospel heart protects against pride. James and John battled desiring a different kingdom than the one Jesus had been preaching, didn't they? They, they were missing the rule and reign of Christ in their hearts. They were missing their own individual need for Christ and a Savior and began wanting this ruler that would conquer the earthly powers that enslaved them. They, they sought to be at the right hand and left hand of Jesus. And in one sense, that makes them uh, be, in a, be in a place of honor and almost to be worshipped. The kingdom of God is this rule and reign of Christ first in people's lives. Never miss that. We, we must never forget our need of the gospel. We can't become comfortable or indifferent with it. Gospel focus will bring worship of Jesus. It will bring gratitude for what Jesus has done and will protect our hearts from prideful arrogance. Don't slip into seeking the kind of kingdom that the disciples did. Are you seeking a world where religious influence has made our culture easy for us to live in? I mean, how many of us, self-included, can say that we easily slide into a position of saying, oh, I just wish our, our politicians were all sold out Christians so our world would be, you know, I could pray in public and not worry about anybody saying anything. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but we miss the essence of the gospel speaking to our hearts first. You know, our world changes and families change and relationship changes and... Uh, families change when the gospel changes our hearts and we become servants and sacrificial in our living with one another. Amen? We have to be very careful because this slips into churches. You've got celebrity pastors. You've got celebrity Christian musicians. You've got celebrity leaders that write books. And before long, they like positions of honor. The church... Is Jesus' church. None of us get in except through the gospel. This can never be Ronnie's church or Jeff's church or your church. This is Jesus' church that we're invited into by Christ and Christ alone. One of my ministry uh, responsibilities outside of substance is I serve as district superintendent for our denomination. And I see this whole missing and pridefulness show up sometimes when I get called in to help them work through uh, some tensions. That's a nice way of saying conflict. Inevitably, every single time, the root goes back to people, leaders, pastor, people in the church, getting to a place where they think they have certain rights in the church. You know, they think it's a democracy. It's my church. I'm a part of this church, so we should vote on things. Let me, let me just say this. Christ's church is never a democracy. It's a Christocracy. Meaning Jesus and Jesus alone is the head of the church. He determines her mission. He determines her vision. He determines her values. important for us 
to be reminded of that because without even knowing it sometimes, we want to get on the right hand or left hand side of Jesus and make sure our points are. Now, before we go too far, let me just remind us, we're going to get to live this out coming up this fall as Substance Church. We're going to start a Sunday morning service here. We already have one in Ashland. And so we'll move from Sunday night to Sunday morning. Guess what word comes to mind? Change. Some people will like it. Some people won't like it. But when we have a heart posture like Jesus, not my will, but the will of God, will we see it through his lens, his idea of, it's not about me, it's, it's about the gospel and about serving. The other way it'll take place is we're going to multiply community groups this fall. That means we'll have new community group leaders. We'll have people move from some groups into other groups. And we'll probably get phone calls. Can I go back to my old group? I let, you know, it's wonderful that we have good fellowship and study time together. But it's not about me. Amen? We're going to get to live this out. And I challenge you, as you think about the fall, and those things rise up in this that uh, become a little prideful, to ask yourself, am I, am I trying to get a seat of honor? Is my attitude, my heart posture one of humility or entitlement? Second thing I think uh, from this passage we take away is the gospel produces a humble heart that sees our spiritual poverty. The gospel produces a humble heart that sees our spiritual poverty. Micah 6.8 says this, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindly, to walk humbly with your God. Humility is the act of accurately seeing your sins before a holy God. Uh, and knowing that the great cost of God was sending Jesus to deal with those sins. Humility sees God as big and you as small. Pride keeps us big and makes us the most important thing in life. Humility keeps God and his will as my focus. Pride keeps me and my desire as the focus. Humility recognizes your brokenness and your need of a savior. Pride makes you indifferent to the gospel. And we begin to think we deserve grace and mercy from God and try to earn it. Humility drives a heart to worship because you see the love and grace and mercy of God. Humility opens the door to confession and repentance. Pride locks the door. Humility calls us to serve. Pride keeps us from seeing the need. The gospel breaks the proud heart when the proud heart is surrendered to Jesus. Jesus says, you want to be my follower? Be humble like me. Live as I lived. Third, the heart of, that Jesus desires and commands is radically different from the world we live in and must produce a heart of worship. The heart is a heart of worship if it's impacted by the gospel. 
one that passionately pursues God because you know and remember that Jesus is your Savior, Redeemer, and as we learned here, Ransomer. And that wells up in us and brings a heart of worship. It's a heart that pursues God's kingdom, not your own. Uh, your priorities reflect a deep devotion to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's a heart that looks to serve rather than be served. You look to invest in others. You look to model the same attitude and actions of Christ in all areas. It's a heart that loves and gives sacrificially like Jesus. It's a heart that understands our time, our talents, and our treasures are all his to be given back to him. It's a heart that strives to live displaying grace, mercy, and love like Jesus did for you. And therefore, your relationships look different. It's a heart that seeks Jesus like the blind man does, or like the blind man did, not allowing the world to keep you from going to Jesus and following him, but one that has surrendered. Fourth and finally, I want us to consider the blind man and his response to Jesus. When's the last time your heart was desperate for Jesus like Bartimaeus? When's the last time your heart was so desperate? You know, each and every day we have the opportunity to come and uh, be in communion with Jesus, don't we? Each and every day, we, we can open up his word, we can sit and pray and listen to him, but there needs to be a desperateness for us in that, doesn't there? Or, or else it becomes a prideful thing. When's the last time you were desperate like the blind man? Can, can you have periods of time and not think about spending time with Jesus? Can you get comfortable and indifferent to the gospel because, well, you know, you prayed that prayer once, so I'm good to go. Has your faith been reduced to an hour a week? Does your faith look more like doing something to a God or avoid God's punishment or trying to gain his favor? Or is it a faith that seeks Jesus, longs to know him, desires to be with him, wants to love like him and serve like him. How's your desperateness for Jesus? Maybe even this evening, there's somebody who would say, for a little bit now, Jesus has been calling my name and I'm happy to sit here because people are telling me to sit here. You know, there's family, there's friends, there's relatives that, you know, the cost is pretty high to get up and speak and follow Jesus. Maybe you just simply, on the other hand, are a person tonight that need to remember when your passion to be with Jesus was strong and you followed faithfully on the way with him and loved serving and loved being sacrificial and really desired to model and live following Jesus. I know it's helpful for me from time to time to pause and just remember those days when, when Jesus was calling me and then after I became a follower of Christ, the excitement and the passion I had 
looks different than it does now at times. I need to realign my heart. I, I need the desperateness that Bartimaeus displayed. Well, be encouraged this evening. We don't always or maybe rarely get our passions and priorities right, do we? I don't. Remember the love and the shepherding way Jesus dealt with his disciples in these passages. He, he's not a cruel taskmaster raiding to heap wrath upon you. He's a gentle shepherd waiting to lead you, calling you, following him. There's three things that uh, Jeff tries to remember that have been great comfort to me in my Christian walk. They're these. If you seek him, you will find him. Second, if you call to him, he will answer. Third, if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. All three of those are found in the scriptures. Jesus, if you seek him, you will find him. Jesus, if you call to him, he will answer. Jesus, if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, if we're truthful this evening, our tendency is to gravitate to a prideful heart does not see our sin as something that is that bad. We may try to even compare ourselves to others and not stand before you and your holiness. Lord, help us to have a heart that wants to be humble, not a heart that has this tendency to elevate ourselves, think we have rights, seek power and prestige and prominence in this world. Lord, remind us of our spiritual poverty and our need to have a humble heart that clearly sees our sin and your holiness and your great love and mercy and grace that was displayed on the cross for us. Forgive us for not understanding that you came to set up a kingdom that rules and reigns in the hearts of your creation, your people. Help us to seek that kind of kingdom. Give us courage to confess even right now in our hearts. If we've diminished, taken for granted, or disregarded your gospel and our need of it, please forgive us. Lord, restore us today. Give us a clean, humble heart, one that is desperate for you daily. Thank you that you are a model of what a real human, a real person created to follow you looks like here on earth. A suffering servant, a gentle shepherd, one that restores. So thank you this evening that we can come to you, Jesus, with full understanding knowing the gospel has been clearly clearly communicated through your word and through your actions and begs us, calls us back to you. In Christ's name, amen.